Welcome to my Nipsing University students. I hope you're all doing well today. This is my first time recording anything in the new house. So uh, I don't have internet in this place yet, but you know, uh, to actually record this, I don't need the internet, just need the internet to upload it. So welcome to the, f the first ever from the new digital, I don't know, from my new den in my new house. And, uh, you know, thank you for your patience and, and giving me a bit of breathing room this week. I know that uh, we have work to do here and, and you're waiting to hear back from me regarding some of your specific projects for Giants of Psychology. I'll, I'll get back to all that soon. I actually just finished making your test. It's going to be available uh, by the time you hear this. And uh, so yeah, so things are coming. I appreciate the little bit of patience. I had a kind of crazy week with the move, but I'm settled in and this is the first presentation in the new setup. So I hope this is cool and, and you get something from it. And I really want to use this as your preparation for the first quiz. And what I mean by that is I don't want to, I want this to be your study session. Okay, and we're going to, I want to approach this because someone asked a really good question about like, why is the first quiz on chapter three? And like, what about chapter one and two? And chapter one, the assignment really relates to some of the ideas and kind of generalizing, expanding from chapter one, some stuff. And then, because we talked about all these different psychologists and then Giants of Psychology was trying to kind of situate how that all fits. But at a certain extent, yeah, we didn't really evaluate you directly on chapter two, to, but chapter two is kind of the biological beginnings kind of sets the sets the, the framework of where we're about to go. And then as we start to now move through the life cycle and we start at infancy and then we move into like early childhood and all this stuff, we're going to do a quiz after each of these textbook chapters. All right. And my philosophy for doing this is actually that instead of having some cumulative tests where we do, you know, a, a whole bunch of chapters and then a big test, that instead of that, what we do is we basically do my presentation and while we're going through we really focus on understanding the concepts and then you have a short quiz and so I'll tell you this in a different context too but I've decided not to give real detailed practice tests because it's a tricky double-edged sword or double-edged coin where it's like the more prep I give you the more I need to expect on the test so basically, like the, the more complex the practice test, the harder the test. And so what I want to kind of do is do this thing where we do the chapter presentation and then you do a quiz based on that with no real practice test. But then the quiz isn't as hard as it would be if you had a practice test. And uh, let's just try it this week. So the quiz, um, I'll talk more about it, but basically what you're going to do is it's going to be available. So once you've watched this and maybe go back, maybe take some notes while we're doing this, maybe read the chapter, watch this again or something, and then do the quiz. And then boom, you're done with chapter three. Then we move on to the next thing, right? So that you're all busy people. It's a busy, crazy world. Let's like focus on making this bite size because I really don't want to, my goal with this course isn't to have you do some monster massive final test. It's to 
break it up. Let's actually get interested in psych and let's actually dive into this. Because like today we're going to talk about the physical development of the brain of an infant. Like a fascinating, fascinating, multi-dimensional, multi-layered topic. This course isn't just about the tests and assignments. And I know, I know as students, it's so, it's the central focus. And I, I can't act like it wasn't for me when I was a student. I totally get it. It makes complete sense. It's how you're being evaluated. The same way that I'm like really focused on trying to make presentations that are I think are decent because I feel like that's how I'm evaluated. You feel like how you're evaluated is on the tests and assignments. And you want to have that clear. And I get that. You know, I only finished my PhD in 2016, so I'm, I'm not that, that, that far away from being a university student. So I get it. So uh, I've kind of made a commitment in my head to, like, really kind of focus with my work with your group to add a lot of clarity over the next week or so with what it exactly is coming your way in terms of quizzes and i think if you follow along sorry the, the squeaky chair i'm gonna get a new chair but uh i think if you follow along today and we really focus on doing this together and so right now it's like i don't know sunday night maybe 10 i mean saturday night maybe 10 o'clock yeah and i'm here making your presentation because uh you know there's nothing i'd rather be doing i actually quite love doing this so uh, my wife and daughter just went back to the other house because now we're right kind of in between two houses. We have access to the new house, but uh, like our beds and everything are still at the old house. But I have my computer stuff set up here, so I'm going to record it here and then go back to the other house, upload it. And uh, yeah, anyways, I don't need to tell you about all that. Welcome back. I hope you're doing well. And let's get into this. Chapter 3, Physical Growth and Development in Infancy. Right, and I really want us to try to get fascinated with this idea of like what we're talking about in this chapter is the birth of the brain, and we've we've talked about the um, foundational aspect of of development that happens in the womb, and now the baby's been born, and now that brain is engaging a world, and what's happening? All right, welcome back. Let's do this. Chapter 3. Cephalocaudal. 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 Say it a few times. Head to tail. Head to tail. Alright, so again, you're like, what's going on with Mike? But I'm trying to kind of break down this word for you. So think of this is this idea that as the human being is developing, that this pattern of growth from head to tail, okay, so that's what that word means. That the baby, and I'm gonna show a picture of this in a second, but just so you have this in your notes, that the head is prioritized. Now, what that means is actually fascinating. That because really it's like it's like the biology and the evolutionary priority was creating an organism with as strong of a brain as possible. And we're going to talk about how this extended childhood is a huge part of human being uh, that's actually linked to like size of brain and stuff like that. I think I um, presented that last week or I'm about to. 
And but this idea is huge, right? That actually literally the size of the kid's head and, and you probably noticed this, like it was definitely true with my daughter, it was true with probably you, it was true with me, it was true with all babies and obviously some more than others, but that the head is the big part and it's proportionally, right? So proportionally means like in comparison to everything else. And then the baby kind of grows into itself. But a baby at first kind of looks like its head is huge proportionally to the newborn's body. You know, huge is a not the most scientific world, uh, word around, but it's like everybody knows what I mean by that. That there's this pattern. Okay, so back to this term. Cephalocaudal, meaning like head to tail, head to tail. As if that, I'm almost repeating that almost as if to warn you of a potential question. No, I'm just joking. But again, if I was to ask a question of that, I would want to know this idea that the baby is, it's not like the growth of this organism. If you're looking again, remember the whole focus of today is on physical growth. That if you're looking at the growth of this organism, it's not happening randomly. It's like it's happening in a direction. And the direction seems to be from head to tail. Now again, you're like, tail? What are you talking about? Humans don't have tails. So this is an idea that transcends, first of all, just humans. And uh, some of you are probably already thinking, like, obviously we do have a tailbone. Right? So, and... Yes, yeah, so like the evolutionary history of that you may find interesting. That the same pattern occurs even within the head. Right, so the top part of the head, the eyes and the brain grow faster than the lower parts of the head. Like the like the jaw. Isn't that crazy? It's or not sorry, I grew up in the nineties like where we always use the word crazy as meaning fascinating, like mind-blowing. And it's like mind-blowing that nature has created such a beautiful complexity. Infants see objects before they can control their torso. So before they can even move, they're starting to see, like, they can use their hands, so meaning, like, they can, like, see around. It's almost like, think about that. I know that's a weird sentence. They've been see objects before they can control the torso and can use their hands long before they can crawl or walk. And that's kind of two more examples of this, that they're, it's like, as soon as they're born, and we're going to talk about this in a lot more detail about the sensory motor aspect of childhood or that like when a kid's born they're so focused on their senses right so like vision hearing taste all that kind of stuff and then moving around but that like the senses almost is first it's like if infants see things and that's before they start to move you know again sorry if you're like oh mike Saturday night drinking coffee getting deep but it's like the first thing you did as alive in the world being was see you know and and then came movement 
and, and moving the hands and this idea of like even it doesn't say this directly but I think you could make a case that this would even link not just to growth but even to things like as complex as so if cephalocycladal means head to tail right so basically top to bottom the process of cephalocycladal direction from head to tail this means improvement in structure and function comes first in the head then the trunk then the legs and then this other word proximodistal means near to far right the word proxy or proximity is in there and it means like proximity and distance means distance between but it also in this sense what this word means is that it's not like we and you know this but this is just the word it's not like obviously it's not like we start growing from the right side as if we're like I don't know how else to say this except just being like 3d printed or something it's not like it starts on the right side and like comes across our body and we're like all of a sudden all done on the right and then in the middle and then it does the left side it's like actually this I know this is a weird example but I'm just trying to make the word make sense what actually happens is as the baby's growing they're both growing from the head down cephalocycladal and from the middle out so remember in this chapter we're talking about physical changes in infancy and so like we're starting with just this idea of directional pattern the growth starts at the center of the body and moves towards the extremities would be like the the more normal way of saying it than 3d printing but i think that that might have actually made sense okay next slide so for this one milestones of gross motor development and think of gross this is one of these weird words that sometimes like in most scenarios obviously gross means like disgusting or sick or whatever but in kind of rare instances the word gross is sometimes used to mean large or really big so for example gross motor development means in general that we're talking about like bigger physical movements in contrast to like fine motor development which would be something like picking up a pencil or putting the block in a really delicate position or something like that the other place you'll hear it is where people say sometimes in a movie or something you'll hear someone say that that was a gross over exaggeration and they are actually using the word gross also in that sense as meaning big uh, that don't worry about writing that down that's a total just side point but maybe kind of interesting so in this first year of life and why this is interesting is that if we were to split up the kind of hundred year potential lifespan say we said like okay everybody in the class let's just pretend there was a hundred people everyone gets one year of that lifespan to work on it's like whoever has the zero to one has the most work to do because there's so much that happens in that first year of life there's so much physical thing development remember in this specific chapter we're talking about physical development or changes right changes being like a development or development meaning kind of changes in a specific direction and well the 
first one, like even just going from not being in control of your physical body to controlling your physical body, right? Like even just starting to be able to lift the head and starting to be able to prone or like when lying down, just like push up a little bit, right? That that's actually the beginnings of developing physical control and coordination of the body. And that all those other things like rolling and like rolling over, you know what that means. And stooping just means bending over, starting to sit up, starting to stand, starting to climb, you know, possibly even walk. So like the amount of physical development that happens within this one year span. And again, like we all know this, but it's, from a, if, if you're interested in developmental psychology, it's so interesting how much development and change is packaged in that first year. And how, we, how it's evolved to be like that. It's, it's so fascinating. Okay, so I want to introduce a new term. And I know that you can see here this picture of the brain where it has all the different lobes and the cerebellum and the brainstem. And so uh, keep in mind, just orientation-wise, that the frontal lobe is the front, like your behind the forehead part of your skull. The eyes would be basically where the word temporal lobe is, sort of like in front of that, right? The optical or the occipital lobe is at the back the visual part of the brain. We'll talk about the lobes in a second, but I want to introduce this term. Okay, so I want to spend a, a second here talking about what developmental cognitive neuroscience is. And it's actually really interesting. It's, well, you already know what cognitive, I mean, developmental is obviously, that's what this class is, looking at psychology in relation to age and how things develop. You know that cognitive means basically the work that the brain does. So whether we're talking about memory or whether we're talking about decision-making, problem-solving, uh, map-making, all that kind of stuff, like planning. So how those things develop. And then looking at the neuroscience of that, so how that's like actually mapped in the brain. So again, I'm sorry to take forever to say that, but like, you know all those words individually, but it's kind of interesting to just spend a second thinking of what that means to be a, a type of neuroscience that's focused on how cognition develops. And that there's this, ex and if you're interested in that, then infancy is super, is a, is a, is a huge focal point because there's this period of extensive brain development from birth to infancy. By approximately the, by, sorry, I'll say that, try that again. By approximately two years old of age, the brain is about 75% of the adult's brain weight. So again, in, it's this, this connection between our evolutionary past and, and our developmental patterns is so fascinating because it's like, there's such an emphasis on brain development. It's so prioritized. And this isn't, again, this isn't unique to 
humans. But uh, humans have, you've heard me say, like, other, other mammals also have, uh, especially if we're talking about things like dolphins and, and some of the primates and some of the big cats and stuff like that. But this idea that interaction with environment and individual neurons start to form connections, right? So the baby's now been born. The baby's brain is starting to be, well, starting to engage this external world, this environment. It's starting to form connections. And, and those connections later are starting to allow like things like perceptual understanding and language development and more complex thought. And see, I'm going to say this word a bunch of times today, but this is where Piaget talks about that the child that this age is in what's called sensory motor, right? So, and just kind of just let your let yourself kind of get interested in that idea of like. The child, the little kid, the baby is like looking around and their whole experience of the world is so different than yours as an adult. It's so much based on what they're seeing, what they're hearing, what they're touching, what they're tasting and how they're physically moving their body. So when we're talking about this early development of the child's brain and the physical development, it's interesting to look at this idea of like what actually are we talking about and at a certain point physically we're talking about kind of the core of the of the uh, well the building block blocks of the brain and we get to this question of like what even is a neuron and you'll hear people talk about neurons and you'll hear them talk about neurotransmitters and stuff like this but at a certain point we're talking when we're talking about a neuron we're talking about a type of nerve cell okay so these are nerve cells in the brain that handle information processing now think about that right? like that's just like a short sentence it's just a nerve cell that handles information processing it's like what that's actually super deep that and then over the next few slides we'll like break down what what like the mind sheath is and stuff like that, what dendrites are. But I think this is just so fascinating that some of our nerve cells have this ability to process information in this very specific way, and that that's central to understanding what our brain is, and that these neurons send chemical signals to each other, and that this is actually, you know, the underlying mechanics of what our brain is. The, physical, the physicality of it. Okay, so if you could have this in your notes, that when we're talking about this developing brain, I want you to know this: these terms, the axons and the dendrites. Okay, so these are both parts of this, of a neuron, right? So the axons carry signals away from the cells, and the dendrites carry to the cells. So what you'll notice there is the kind of important point is the directionality. Axons away. So you could even just as a memory trick, like 
axon and away are the same. Both start with A, right? So axon means it's going away from the cell. Dendrites means it's coming towards the cell. And you can kind of see that makes sense, right? When you actually look at the picture of what it physically is. The axons are going, it's like the branch that's going away from the middle. Whereas the dendrites are like, almost like receiver arms. Ready to, where the, what we're later going to call the synopsis and like the neurotransmission happens. But it's kind of useful to view it as almost like receivers. Right, so again, just I want you to know that difference. Axons carry signals away from the cell. Dendrites carry signals towards it. So for this one, we need to understand what this term myelin means, right? And then the two subterms will make more sense. So since I know you're all watching this as a video after the fact, you might want to like just listen to how I explain this word. Then if you want to pause it and write down the definitions, you can. But think of myelin as this idea that the, the axions are like the parts that are carrying, the branches that are carrying information away from the neuron, that they're surrounded. So if you view it as like this branch bringing information away and on the image on your screen, it's blue, right? And that that's that outgoing information is the axon, but that there's this like protective layer around it that's like literally like a fat cell kind of and we call that the myelin so now the word sheath is uh, a word that means like if you've ever seen like an old movie or a martial art movie or something where someone has a sword and it's in like a case but the actual word for that is a sheath the sword's in a sheath Right, so a sheath is like a protective outer layer. And so myelin sheath is this protective outer layer. The other example you could think of is like a cord, like the cord that's charging your phone. It's There's the cords there, but then there's this protective uh, plastic on the outside. Right, so just as a metaphor, but like in this example, we're talking about a fatty kind of cell a fat cell layer encasing many axons, insulating them, helping the electrical signals move faster. Right, so it's almost like the, the coding of the information highways of the brain, of this emerging brain. So this myelin, I want you to know it in both these senses, right? So the myelin sheath is this protective coating that is around the axons, right? And remember from the last side, the axons are the information leaving, right? Because now think about what am I meaning by information leaving? If we're saying, we're, we're, what I'm about to be getting into is this idea that like how the, the brain works is by building these connections and part of building, what does the word connection mean? It means like one part of the brain or one one neuron connecting to another one and that this is an electrical process 
and that part of that connection, and we're going to talk about the different layers of this, whether we're talking about the synapses or the neurotransmitters or whatever, that part of that process is kind of protecting the underlying highway that the information travels on. And this myelination is like a really important part of the construction of the brain. It's this protective coating that insulates, helping electrical signals travel faster. And the process of that um, encasing is what we call myelination. So the two words are, are one's about the process and one's about the descriptive term. Hope that makes sense. Okay, next slide. So then if you look at this next picture, right? I find this so interesting if we were to take a close-up look at what the end of this axon looks like. Remember again, when we're talking about information coming into the cell, we call that dendrites. When we're talking about information going out, we call that when we're talking about uh, like neurons, I mean like specifically brain cells or brain uh, nerve cells in the brain, that when we're talking in, it's dendrites when we're talking out it's axons so axons is the word we're talking here when we're using the word neurotransmitters how the message is sent out and if you look at this this blue um, axon that comes down like this and you see here what are called the terminal buttons right so all that kind of means is it's like the edge of the different branches of the tree looking thing Right, and then there'd be another one coming up from the bottom, right? The next, sorry, this chair's so squeaky. I, I promise I'll have some of the audio better the next one. This is my first time in this lab, as I already, or in this lab, in this uh, recording setting. So I'll get that all taken care of for next time. But anyways, so I wanted to, you can see the word there, right? Neurotransmitters. I wanted to kind of just. Uh, with the color or whatever separate those that we're really talking about this ability to transmit electrical signals in the brain between neurons remember nerve cells in the brain is what a neuron is and so it has to go from one to the other and how it goes from one to the other and I know some of you are at such different levels I'm not really sure some of you uh, maybe coming directly from like biology programs and um, and you might have a much some of you might have very different understandings of some of this bio, biological language um, but I'm just going to be really focusing on how it relates specifically to child development right but to do that understanding what we even mean when we're talking about the physical brain uh, is, is really important. And at a certain point, we're talking about the transmission of electrical energy. And what does transmission mean? Well, that just means like from one thing to somewhere else. And so this is where it's going from these terminal buttons to the next neuron. And something actually happens to go from one side to the next. We'll get to that. Coming up next.
Neurons change in two very significant ways during the first years of life. First, myelination, which we've been talking about, this process of encasing axons with fat cells, begins prenatally and continues throughout childhood, even into adolescence. Secondly, there's this connectivity or this you know building of connections among neurons and it continues to increase creating new neural pathways new dendrites grow connections among dendrites increase the synaptic connections between axons and dendrites proliferate meaning like just expand more and more and more whereas myelination speeds up neurotransmissions the expansion of dendrite connections facilitates the spreading of neural pathways and infant development. So it's like this, the expansion of these connections of the dendrites, think of the dendrites as the branches of this tree, right? Like as that's connecting, that's actually creating this, this highway. And then the myelination is, if you remember like the protective coding of that highway. So it's like one's building the potential for the messages to send, number two on that list. And number one on that list is, as that's happening, kind of building the protective coding of the system. How complex are these neural connections? One may ask. In analysis, sorry, sorry, that was weird how I said that. I just had it written like that. In analysis by Dehan, this, this is research from 2015. It was estimated that each of the billions of neurons is connected to as many as a thousand other neurons, producing neural networks with trillions of connections. So, you should find that kind of nuts. In a, like, not nuts, but you know what I mean? Uh, Mind-blowing. That... Each of us has billions of neurons connected to as many as a thousand other neurons, producing trillions of connections, trillions of those highways between uh, neurons. Now, as we get older, we start to prune those because some of those connections aren't any value and some are bloomed. So there's this idea I want you to have in your notes. Okay, so this made me sit up I want you to I was just leaning back a bit but I want you to have this term blooming or pruning so bloom like a flower blooming or pruning also like a flower and that actual that flower metaphor sort of makes sense here this idea of like the brains growing but at the same time also pruning itself meaning it's like cutting away the brat the bad branches Blooming and pruning varies considerably by brain region in the prefrontal cortex, the front of the brain, the area where the high-level thinking and self-regulation occurs. The peak of overproduction occurs at just over three years of age. It's not until middle to late adolescence that the adult density—sorry, uh, that adult density of synapses—is achieved. So, density just meaning like the amount in that area both heredity and environment are thought to influence the timing and the course of synaptic overproduction and subsequent retraction okay, 
it's so synaptic just remember that's like the connection between the two how many of those connections are there is the synaptic density so remember don't get even though I, i'm saying don't get over caught up with the words even though i like stumbled through that quote but basically it's just this idea of like how part of what we mean by building the brain is related to this idea of the density of those synaptic connections between the neurons in the brain that synaptic density is believed to be an important indication of how much connection there is between neurons in an area so if we were to say that this one part of the brain seemed to score really high in synaptic density what we're saying is the neurons in that area seem to be really heavily connected with a lot of other things like say the visual cortex so the visual cortex so that the neurons in the brain uh, related to the the sensation and perception of vision is like heavily connected with all these other things maybe more than other parts so that's what that word synaptic density means So remember when we're talking about these neurons in the brain, um, we keep jumping back between these words axons and dendrites. And just remember that all that that means is, are we talking about how, so if you view all these connections in your brain as really connections between single entities and those entities, or entities, they're not entities, they're neurons. These single cells need to both send out signals and take in signals. The sending out is the axons, the taking in is the dendrites. I know I'm kind of repeating this, but I'm trying to help hammer this in. So when we talk about these dendrites, these receivers basically trying to take in information, that those, as those connect with other ones, we start to see this spreading of what we call neural pathways. Right, this ability to form these connections is increasing. And the brain has this interesting process of it creates almost more connections that it needs. Right, and this is where we get to that idea of pruning that as we get older and as the brain is kind of constantly in this process of, oh, maybe these things are related. Oh, no, they're not lose that information it's not like the baby knows it's doing it though right of course this is happening like under the waves right the huge this idea of again this chair sorry if you can hear that creak but these uh connections these associations become stronger and and some of them survive and then the ones that like don't get used again and become like weaker and fade away and this is how this you know, mapping of the highways of connections in your brain starts to become established. That the unused ones or the or the unsuccessful ones become replaced by other pathways. Or they so some of the discussion around the physical changes that happen in the brain, we got to establish some of the language around the specific parts of the brain right so in this next little section we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about the different regions of the brain different kind of the structural components and one of the things to talk about is this idea of the forebrain okay so 
the forebrain is you can see it here is this kind of c-shaped area it includes the cerebral cortex and some of the structures beneath that right the cerebral cortex covers the forebrain like a wrinkled cap it's kind of a weird way of saying it but you can see it there right you got the the brain and this is kind of a this image here doesn't show it well enough show it more in an upcoming image here but this idea of the brain has two halves right hemisphere like a, a halfing of it we're going to talk about this idea of hemispheres a bit today right so in each hemisphere can you please have this in your notes that in each hemisphere there's four lobes we'll talk about this we'll get into the lobes in just a second but like you've heard of uh, maybe the temporal lobe and this and the um, the parental lobe and we'll, we'll, we'll name the four and I'll talk about what each of them is associated with in just a second but the point that I wanted to make here is just this idea that you can break the brain or like just if you're looking at it from the top and you were to do a semi-sectional look at it so cut it in the middle and open it up you could split the two hemispheres and both of those hemispheres have those four lobes so if we're to look at these four lobes so Let's put these down here like this. It's, it's so interesting because it's like both hemispheres, so both the left and the right hemispheres have aspects or have what you could consider these four lobes, even though they're not identical. But they do the same thing. So just really quick, the, if you want to have this, the temporal lobe. So the temporal lobe is, is really interesting because it's involved in processing sensory input. And taking that and making it into and deriving meaning from it and determining what the appropriate retention of things like visual memories and how to make sense of language and emotional association but what's interesting is that it, it's taking it's trying to make sense of the world right where the parental lobe is really interesting because it's trying to integrate what we're seeing right and the temporal lobe is trying to make sense of it and the the optical uh, lobe is well it's it's like the the visual processing aspect right and other things too but so so much of that activity is is centered around this idea of seeing what's out there in, integrating all of the data we're seeing what we're seeing what we're hearing what, and remember the child's like sensory motor again I've said this word a lot but this idea of their experience is based in their motion and their sense, their senses, their sense organs. Right, so a lot of the brain power is, well, first of all, a lot of your brain power goes to vision in general, right? And then the parental area, it's like integrating across your senses. And then the temporal lobe, it's like figuring out how that relates to other stuff, like memories and all that kind of stuff. And then 
in the frontal lobe it's looking at this well the frontal lobe let me just end with the frontal lobe I got some stuff to read about that it's by far the most interesting and the newest the frontal lobe contains most of the dopamine delicate neurons which is interesting right you always hear about how dopamine is related to things like reward systems and and uh, pleasure right the dopamine systems associated with reward attention short-term memory tasks planning motivation dopamine tends to limit and select sensory information right so think about that it's like you do things in your life and you start to learn right away that certain things are rewarded certain things people don't really care about there's a natural tendency to get pulled towards things that are rewarded that's true at like a social level that's also true at like a very small level you learn like what you don't need to care about in the environment and you stop noticing those things to a large extent we very much engage the world that we care about if you're interested in that like philosophically that's a field of philosophy called phenomenology this idea that as human beings we're not just neutrally engaging anything we're starting started uh what's the word i'm looking for we're applying like an interpretive filter so again again i'm getting a little philosophical but right from birth the baby's trying to make sense of their complex world and and some of that is taking in the information some of that is trying to integrate it right because it's coming in from a bunch of areas sounds and sights and tastes and that gets integrated and then it gets interpreted and then well in the frontal lobe it's doing a, a, a whole bunch of the work and we'll, we'll talk about the frontal lobe and, and how that's like the part of the brain where that's our most evolved newest part of the brain injury to that part of the brain is so devastating and we'll get into that as we as we move through this course but and we talk about things like dramatic brain injuries and acquired brain injuries and how devastating an effect it can have on things like personality so this term lateralization means that like how the left and the right hemisphere interact right so if we're talking about how each of these hemispheres have four lobes but that there's a difference between them and you hear people talk about the difference between right and left hemisphere and we can talk about that at different points and it is very interesting but that there's function specialization in one of the hemispheres or the other and that this starts before birth right so we see like even in newborns greater electrical brain activity in the left hemisphere than in the right when listening to speech right so the two sides of the brains are, are responding differently this may re reflect early audi auditory experience right so it may be actually that the two hemispheres are processing things differently the most extensive research on brain lateralization is focused on language speech and grammar are located in the left hemisphere for most people but some aspects of language 
such as appropriate language use in different contexts and the use of metaphor and humor involve the right hemisphere. And this is from research uh, in 2014. So, so think about that. That's, I find that so interesting. So it's like the left hemisphere, people often associate that with language. And you're right, except the right, the other side of the brain, has important has an important role in like monitoring, for example, when it's appropriate or not to say certain things, and like when's the how to use something like humor, which is actually like a really a more high end use of language, right? Because for me to say something that you find funny, I have to be kind of aware of how you're interpreting what I'm saying. It's like not always, not with all kinds of humor, but especially if we're talking about like satirical wordplay or, or satire in general or uh, even sarcasm, right? And this idea of even using metaphor. So it's interesting that that's more right hemisphere dominant. Thus, language is not controlled exclusively by the brain's left hemisphere. Further, most neuroscientists agree that complex functions such as things like reading, performing music, creating art, are the outcome of the communication between the two sides of the brain. And again, that has a link to a recent article from 2016 by a researcher named Reese and Knight. But yeah, so anyways, that's, a, that's less important than this general idea of like, so take for example something like a high-end intellectual task isn't maybe engaging both sides so your your ability to my ability to like say even explain this slide partially maybe using contributions from both sides right and part of it yeah it's just it speaks to the incredible complexity of the brain lateralization this idea that the side the two sides have different specializations Maybe that's the way to say it, that they have different specialization. So in terms of uh, before birth, before the baby's born, the genes are mainly directing how the brain uh, is establishing these basic, like the beginning wiring patterns, the beginning of these connections. But after birth, these environmental experiences start to play a huge role in the baby's brain development, like all these sensory things we've been talking about, sight, sound, smell, touch, language, eye contact, all shape these developing neural connections, right? So you, so you might ask the question, like, what determines how these changes in the brain occur? The infant's brain is literally waiting for experiences to determine how connections are made. Before birth, it appears, it appears that, I mean, sorry, it appears that the genes are mainly directing this. But after birth, the environment starts to play a bigger role. The inflowing stream of sights and sounds and all the sensory information. Right, and so it might not be surprising to you that when, when a child's denied a lot of this stimulation in a more deprived environment, we can actually see this in depressed brain activity. like under an EEG scan, like literally less brain activity.
in less stimulating environments, which is, uh, you know, really worrying. It's like this idea like the baby's born with this predisposed need for stimulation, especially sensory. And uh, when that's not provided, it's uh, it, it can be devastating. So now I want you to think of this word, right? Neuroconstruction or constructivist, whatever. But it, the important two concepts here are the word neuron, right? Or like brain and construction. And this idea that with the brain, once you're born, what it starts doing then is it's almost creating and adapting and adjusting and developing, constructing in this process of interacting with the environment and that the biological processes and the environmental experiences interact to influence how the brain develops and that the development of the physical brain and the kids or the, or the young infants uh, cognitive development, like their ability to think and the physical development of the brain are directly connected. And that's somewhat obvious, but it's also interesting to look at that connection. That brain development influences or can actually constrain or like get in the way of if there's problems. Things like cognitive abilities, a, ch a child's ability to think and perform neural activity. Right? When, it, when a child's able to engage in stimulation, that, that actually has an influence on brain development so that this goes back and forth. So that's kind of the point here is that like a, a child engaging in cognitive tasks and forcing the brain into challenging situations actually like has a physical effect. And that physical effect actually has an effect on the kid's uh, cognitive ability down the road. Right, And it's like they're both affecting each other. It's this interaction, right? So I, I want you to very much know this term, neuroconstructive. And this, this idea that this brain, that your brain is, or well, like in this case we're talking about the brain of an infant, is somewhat plastic and that it's adapting. And it's, inter, it's developing through this interaction between nature and nurture, or we can call it biology and environment. And this is part of what we call like the brain building. But the word here that we're going to use instead of brain building is neuroconstruction. And uh, this is just an additional point that they touch on in the text that I thought is super interesting and I want to get into a lot more later in the course. But this idea of how sleep affects all this, these psychological processes in a very much so in infancy. Infants spend about half of their sleep time in REM sleep specifically, which is interesting because um, it's a more, well, it's just interesting for all kinds of reasons, right? That basically babies spend more of their sleep time dreaming than we do. It's like what's not interesting, like there's, a, there's several interesting lines of thought around that, like how much dreaming might be linked to cognitive development. Right, they often begin their sleep cycle with REM sleep, whereas adults tend to cycle through and get to REM sleep later in the process. 
So so that the, the the role of REM sleep and its role within the sleep cycle and how that has how that manifests differently in infancy is so interesting. It's just a it's just like a kind of really neat side rant here. Okay. The newborn baby isn't born completely helpless. The humans are born with reflexes. And you know this already, but and that these reflexes form the building blocks for what later is going to come as motor development. Okay, and, and motor development is kind of a psycho a developmental psych way of saying this idea of just like the development of your ability to move. So remember, sensory motor is this term I'm saying a million times today, but that for the infant, their experience of the world really is that. It really is their senses and their movement. And motor development is this idea of the, of the development of this movement, right? And that newborns have a range of reflexes, reaction to stimulus or their environment that governs their movement, right? So the example that is being depicted there is this is the rooting reflex right that if a young young infant baby if you touch near their mouth they'll turn towards that and that is related to feeding and that is related to survival right it's like there's a very easy evolutionary argument you can make for why that happens newborns have and it happens in all mammals newborns have a range of reflexes Reaction to stimulus to govern their movements. I already read that, sorry. Reflexes allow infants to respond adaptively to their environment. That's the key point. Before they've had the opportunity to learn it. So if you could have that written down, that's like such a key thing, right? Because what's a reflex? It's a it's to a certain level of behavior that wasn't learned. It allows the I, I'm gonna read this again on purpose just to emphasize. It allows the infant to respond adaptively to their environment before they've had the opportunity to learn. It's like a genetically passed on behavior. So again, I just, I already kind of verbally explained there the rooting reflex, right? That, that tendency towards feeding and that that has direct evolutionary roots related to survival. Because for an infant being able to feed, right, is like the most core survival need. So I won't go over all these, but you might just find these interesting, right? I'll just talk for a sec here about this while, and you can pause this or you can just look around if you're interested. But it's this idea of like, I want you to just kind of sit back for a second and just think. It's like you've heard the word reflexes your whole life. You probably knew that a lot of these existed, right? That if, like, you tickle a baby's foot, it can't, like, help but almost curl its foot a little bit. Right? Or that if you tickle their cheek, they'll, like, turn their head towards it. Or if you tickle their armpit, they'll, like, giggle or whatever. They'll, like, or if you stick their, what's called grasping there, if you, like, tickle the middle of their palm, they'll close their hand on you. Right? It's like, what is that? That's actually, if you, if you kind of step back, that's so fascinating. That's predictable, unlearned behavior. 
is genetically passed on. We call it reflexes. But uh, yeah, it's, it's again, it's just another layer of complexity to what being human is. Um, but it's like these inborn behavioral patterns. Right, and then if you look at the, the right side, so this is saying like, what is the reflex? What is it, sorry again for the chair. What is the reflex? What is it that causes it? How does the infant respond? Right, so let's just use that top one. So the reflex is blinking. It happens when there's a, a light of, I mean a flash of light or a puff of air, right? So if you like go, I won't do it into the mic, but if you like blow into a baby's face, right, and they'll like close their eyes. If you do that into any into an adult's face, they'll close their eyes too. It's that it's that much of a reflex. Um, and again, it's, it's I didn't even notice that yet, but that's what I was about to say is like the the right side column's interesting because it's saying like how long does that last and like that blinking reflex is permanent, but some of these go away. Right, like the grasping weakens after three months and is almost completely gone after a year whereas blinking lasts for your whole life pretty interesting eh? so here's another idea right in looking at how our movement is developed or the motor development and this is called dynamic systems theory right and this idea of our behavior having a genetic root, which is like the most uh, extreme example of that would be like what I was talking about just a little bit ago about things like reflexes. It's like the argument here is that, okay, we can't look at it as just that because actually we need to understand that for this young infant, their action can't be separated from their perception. And that's another way of saying that is their perception and their action are coupled. That means they're connected. It's not like there's the way that the baby makes sense of the world and then the way the baby behaves. It's that those are intimately connected. The, the baby's perception of the world shapes how they, are, how they act, right? The infant must perceive something that motivates them to act and then use their perceptions to fine-tune their movements so they they see something that they care about and they reach for that and they're reaching for that because they care about it and so the way that they're making sense of the world and how they're choosing even at that young young age what is valuable and what isn't is shaping the development of movement right so it's adding into this model the role of motivation that motor skills can be understood as pathways towards goals, right? So that's, what, again, a continuation on this motivation idea that, that the motivation, that one of the reasons you learn to walk is because you want to get to the other side of the room. And if you had no motivation to get to the other side of the room, learning how to walk wouldn't have as, wouldn't be as much of an, a developmental goal is kind of the idea.
And then when we're talking about, sorry, every time I adjust you, I got I promise next time I'll have a different chair. That there's these like what are called gross motor skills and then fine motor skills. And I kind of touched on this earlier, but this just has to do whether we're talking about like running and climbing would be gross motor skills. Handwriting would be fine motor skills. Right, whether we're talking about big motor skills or kind of fine processing skills. And that this idea of new motor skills require practice. So it's like the point that is important around this dynamic system theory is it's adding a layer to this idea of it's not just that these are, we can't just view everything as like reflexes, which we obviously don't, but that we need to view. Okay, so just the point I really want you to highlight is this connection between perception and action. The, the second point on the screen, that perception and action are coupled. They're inseparable. You can't, you can't take those away. And if you're wondering like why I keep harping on this or what I mean, it's just like the baby's way of making sense of the world and their way of acting is so intimately connected. And that's why the two babies act differently because two babies make sense of the world differently. So this visual perception gets into this fascinating difference between, okay, what do we mean when we use the word sensation versus when we use the word perception? And that the word sensation is talking about this idea of how information comes into our body and how it comes into our body through the sense organs, right? So here we're talking about our eyes, our ears, our tongue, our nostrils, our skin. How that information literally comes in, but then how it's interpreted, we call that perception, right? So you, you have sensations all the time. That's just your body's experience of the outside. And then your perception is your interpretation of that. Right? So a baby sees all these things, but is more attracted to a face than something else. Or more attracted to maybe red color than to green. That's a perceptual preference. And, the, and it's right of certain sensory or information over others. So basically the point I'm trying to make with this rant is like sensation is the actual visual information that interacts with our sense organs. Perception is how we interpret that, our perception of it, our perception of our sensations. Okay, on this slide, I'm going to just put this all up so it's a little bit, because I think it'll make sense here. So habituation, let me just jump down the slide for a sec. Habituation is basically getting used to something so much so that it's like it's part of your world. It's part of your habitat. Habituation, right? It's like if while I'm doing this presentation, every once in a while I snap. I snap right in the mic. At first you're like, Man, Mike, that is so annoying. 
But if I if you if you had to listen to these lectures and you couldn't stop for some I don't know some hypothetical reason, you'd eventually get used to it. You might hate it, but eventually you'd stop almost even hearing it. You'd become so habituated to it. So this idea is that, in this sense, it's like kids or babies can get bored with the same stimuli. So you show them the same picture or something or the same toy, that they can start to get bored from it. Now, that's interesting because the ability to get bored of one thing over another shows an ability to preference things and to notice that things are different. Right, and, and they're starting to be able to visually, perceptually differentiate between things. Right, because sometimes in, in sometimes when you're looking at how babies perceive things, you notice that they're sometimes not showing a visual preference. They're not picking. They're not looking more at one thing than something else. And maybe it's because they're not noticing a difference, so they're perhaps they're unable to discriminate. Or maybe they're bored of the visual information and it needs to be changed. Right, so it's like... And then dis, uh, habitu uh, dishabituation, or, or remember, habituation is basically getting bored of something from being exposed to it so much. Dishabituation would be getting that kind of newness response again by adding something new. So it's like the kid's bored of being shown the same toy picture over and over, but then all of a sudden it's a picture of a different toy. And so it's novel. And so it has a, an, an effect that um, because at a certain point, this is where I know I'm kind of stumbling here because it's hard to explain at a certain level because one of the most difficult things about us is that you have preferences that are different than mine. We could both walk into a room and you could be like, oh, the lights in this room are so cool. And I could have like been focused on the carpet or on the, on the, I don't know if I've ever walked in a room and been totally focused on the carpet. I don't know why I use that example, but just this idea of like, we notice different things. We're interested in different things. Or, our minds and our, our perceptual experience of things are pulled in different directions. And this idea of human preference and that this actually starts early and that our perception of things and our engagement with the world are so intimately connected. It's like, I've said this multiple times already today, but it's just, again, this complexity of this emerging human brain you'd find this picture cool. So using the visual preference method, the newborn's vision is estimated to be 20 to 600. Um, so I, I showed that on the last slide. So if you think of like a perfect vision, you always hear people say like, oh, I got 20-20 vision. It's like, well, a newborn's baby, uh, a newborn baby's vision is estimated to be 20 to 600 on the well-known Snell and eye examination chart. This means that a newborn can clearly see from 20 feet or from 6 meters, what an adult with normal 20-20 vision can see from a distance of 600 feet. So a baby could see from 20 feet, would say I could see from 600 feet. 
but that as the baby gets older, the visual acuity, which just means like how clear the picture is acuity. So like on the, what you're looking at at the screen as it moves towards the picture where you can see the woman's face clearly, the acuity is getting better. It's getting a higher level of visual acuity from one month to two months to three months to a year. And that's a pretty dramatic, that picture's a pretty cool way of showing it, I think. Okay, so here's a cool experiment you may have heard of. So this is called the visual cliff. And this is trying to, this is a classic experiment to try to look at if a baby um, can experience depth perception. So if you see that there, you can basically see that what it is is it's like a checkerboard thing. And then it looks like the checkerboard's below, because it is, but there's a piece of glass, right? So it's like, can the baby tell that that isn't just a fall, like a free fall? In a seminal study, Eleanor Gibson and Richard Walk, so this was in 1960, constructed a visual cliff. They did this by creating a two-level checkboard pattern, one at the height of the table, the other at the floor level. The drop-off was covered by glass, so it was safe for the baby to crawl over. They placed six to 12-month-old infants on the edge of this visual cliff, right? So there's no actual threat to the baby. It was just to see if they would be intimidated. Uh, and they had their mothers try to coax them to crawl into the, onto the glass. Most of the babies, so again, so they're trying to like basically lure the baby with like a treat or a toy or something to come on the glass and to see if the baby has the ability to see, right, or to judge that depth and if that judging of depth has any impact on its behavior. Right, because we would think that if the baby's able to judge that depth and sees like, well, that looks like I'm going to fall, then they'd be more hesitant. Most of the infants in the study would not crawl on the glass. They wouldn't, so that's interesting. Choosing to stay on the safe side, an indication that they actually could perceive depth. Faces. The human face is probably the most important visual stimulus in a child's environment. And it's important that they extract key information from the faces of other people, especially uh, especially mom or especially their parents. Infants show a interest in human faces soon after birth. So that's interesting. Like within hours of birth, an infant prefers to look at a face than another object. And again, I'm, you'll hear me make this point in relation to tons of examples, but that's not by accident. There's easy to make evolutionary rationale for why a baby would be born immediately wanting to seek out connection in a world where it's incredibly vulnerable, uh, vulnerable, right? So like this, this survival need to immediately connect to a caregiver and to do it through social connection. Right, so it's just, it's so fascinating. The baby's like almost born pre-programmed to seek face-to-face -face interaction, especially with what we know on how face-to-face uh, -face interaction is linked with things like social bonding. It's just, it's just so complex. 
babies don't recognize faces the way that adults do, right? But but they do show, so they don't do it at the same level of complexity, but their ability to recognize is similar across different face categories, right? Like, they're able to recognize all these faces are faced the right way versus being inverted, or these are all humans and these are all monkeys, right? Or even around ethnicity, like the babies are eating. So we would call this skill, and this links to something Piaget teaches about, it's called like categorization, like this group and this group are, all my cousins are tall, these cousins are taller than me, and these cousins are shorter than me, and these ones have blonde hair, and these ones have brown hair. That a baby, as they're getting older, their ability to categorize is getting better. Right, but that their ability to recognize human faces, especially, well, first of all, a baby can recognize mom's face really early. You can start to differentiate between, there's, there's kind of, we'll talk about this later, but there's kind of some debate around how early they can recognize other people, but the connection with the primary caregiver, especially with mom, is forming almost immediately, um, visually, right? Like obviously the connection predated birth, but, uh, in terms of like immediately after birth, that visual face-to-face. -face. So when I'm saying building connection with mom, please know like when I was saying that earlier, I'm talking like uh, visually through that sensory connection because baby's connection with mom obviously was like ever since conception. So I want to talk about something on this slide that seems weird, or at least I hope you'll find this kind of interesting. So think about this for a sec. This is this idea called novelty preference. So think of novelty as like something new, right? So that when the baby's like kind of half a year to, to or six to nine months, they show a real novelty preference, right? They like things that are new and they, they now think of what that means. If you like something that's new, that demands that you know what's new or what's not new and that you're picking one thing over the other, which is the earliest kind of example of what we would call a preference. To pick one thing over the other or to look at one thing when you had an option in between looking at that or something else. Now, so wouldn't, would a, the second point there, would a novelty preference, what this would be is like, what they would do in this test is, so say they would take six month olds and they would show them a bunch of pictures of monkeys. And then later they would show them a bunch of other pictures and some of them would be the same. And what they found is that the babies would look at the ones they hadn't seen first longer, meaning they had a preference for the novelty. But that by the time the kid was nine months, and again, they're not just testing one kid, they're doing this on a bunch of kids, that that novelty to tell apart or to focus, again, it's not necessarily like they're great, like a six-month-year-old is like great at telling the difference, but it's that their brain seems to be focusing on the new monkeys. Whereas by the time they get to nine months, they, they don't seem to be showing that marked difference. It's like... 
their perceptual narrowing. It's like their environment is teaching them they don't have to be that specific about differences between monkeys. They need to be that specific about humans. I hope you get, I hope that didn't, that's not just a weird point, but you're getting the depth there because that's kind of like saying this idea of how babies are born with this ability to learn any language and it kind of depends on the situation. It's like, yeah, they're also born with the ability to, the way that we're able to tell the difference between people, it's like, I don't want to sound too crazy, but what this research is almost suggesting is like, we can almost do that with, well, it's quite literally suggesting we could almost do that with monkeys, but that as we learn and prioritize doing that with people, we almost lose that ability a bit. Again, it's kind of like speculative research, but um, I at least think that's a that's a super interesting idea. Perceptual narrowing, though. Okay, so not to get too lost in the deep end there, but perceptual narrowing means this idea that actually it is part of us getting smarter the fact that we're focusing our perception and it's actually narrowing and this is this weird thing because we would think narrowing would be a bad thing but that actually becoming more focused and again this goes kind of to this idea of pruning we've talked about before that and i guess perceptual narrowing is almost well, it's like, it's like pruning, but it's not the same thing. But that that's adaptive. It, it's actually part of our ability to adapt to and mold to our environment is our ability to let our environment, to a certain extent, teach us what's important. Or to shape us or whatever. Right? That, that our perceptual abilities are shaped by our environment. Which is actually a pretty intense idea that your environment has shaped the way you're interpreting your world. The auditory experiences of a child begin during the last two months of pregnancy. So this is that's pretty interesting. That their kind of experience of sound really kicks off in those last two months in the womb. Immediately though after birth, an infant can't hear soft sounds quite as well as an adult. A stimulus must be louder for a newborn to hear it. Now, to understand how the perceptual systems of a child works, this is kind of an important word for today. This intermodal perception. Definitely know this word. Intermodal. So remember the word inter, like I-N-T-E-R, means between. And it's the same kind of root as like the word interact. So intermodal means this idea if I was like, can you tell me about your last time at the beach? And you try to think about what your time at the beach was like. And that includes sights and sounds and the the warmth of the sun and all that. But in the moment, you just experienced it as like one thing. It's not like you went to the beach and you were like, well, 
maybe you were like, oh, the, the warmth, the sun and all this, but just in the moment you're experiencing everything as this like combination of sensations and you're perceiving it as like one thing. I don't know if I'm doing a great job of explaining this, but the idea of intermodal perception, it means like all the different types of things you could be perceiving the different modals or like different modes so like sound sight touch taste all these things the connection of them and how they integrate I mean how like the easiest example would be like a piece of pie tastes a certain way but the smell of it also plays a factor in that and that that your perception of that piece of pie is intermodal it integrates information from two or more of the sensory modalities. Actually, most perception is intermodal. Intermodal perception facilitates learning during infancy. And this is because so much of their learning is sensory motor that this intermodal perception is key to their whole, well, like learning their world or their whole developmental cognitive process. So on this slide, I want to talk to you a little bit about an idea from Piaget. And Piaget had these ideas around a schema. So what a schema is, is like, say I asked you, okay, we're going to do this role play and we're going to pretend we're at a job interview and I want you to pretend like you're intervie interviewing me for a job. You're like, okay, and you start to do it, and you're like, so Mike, can you tell me about some last places you worked? And you start behaving a certain role because it's like your memory of what a job interview is is actually a whole bunch of things, and you kind of know how you're supposed to act in a certain situation. And Piaget had this idea that we have these like complicated ideas of behaviors and how we're supposed to perform certain ways in certain situations. And that in life we have these kind of like maps of how we're supposed to do things and we go out and we try them. And we try to use the word assimilate. And then sometimes things work or sometimes they don't work and we need to make accommodations and that we're constantly trying to work out a strategy for interacting with the world. And some of that, and he's talking about like the mental part of this, it's like we're, we're basically trying our plan and then we're changing our plan. and and the trying our plan is what he calls assimilation and then the accommodation is the, the adapting it right so his idea here is that the infant as they're trying to figure out the world they're you know trying to figure out what makes sense and then they're living out their experiences if that makes sense and then they're getting feedback some of their plans working some of it's not and then they make accommodation and in a broader sense, this idea of assimilation and accommodation is really key to Piaget's idea of how um, our cognitions develop over time. Right, so we thought what we need to understand about, and cognition develop over time is just this idea of like obviously a two-year-old and a ten-year-old think very differently. Well, how, does it, how do we go from two to ten? Well, we call that cognitive development. And part of cognitive development is we have our ideas of the world and we play them out through our behavior. 
and then we get feedback through a process that's called the playing it out is called assimilation and then we get feedback and make changes and we call that accommodation right so we don't let me give you an adult example it's like you have an idea of how you're supposed to be on a first date and you go out and you act that way and then there's some there's some you know you act awkward and and um, the date goes bad, so then you're like, oh, I need to change and try some different things. So you make some kind of like accommodation. That was like one of the worst examples ever, but I was just trying to make this idea of it's like playing out the strategy and then some things work, some things don't work. Back to the drawing board. We call that accommodation when a child adjusts their schemes, their, their mental maps of the world to account for new information and experiences. I could redo that slide, but maybe it's late and I'm gonna leave that, leave that in so you guys can just laugh at how bad that example failed. But I think you get the, the general point I'm making here about this idea of cr the, the child's process of getting smarter is directly related to this idea of them creating models of what they think the world is, a simulation and testing that out and getting feedback and adjusting, which we call accommodation. Piaget argued, so just go back before I read this point, to that point I made about, we all know that obviously a two-year-old and a 10-year-old do things like problem solving different, differently. What does that actually mean? It means that they're at different stages of cognitive development. Well, what does that mean? Piaget argued that individuals go through four stages of cognitive development as a result of this idea of assimilation and accommodation we've been talking about. He believed that each of these stages is qualitatively different, right? So not quantitatively different, so not just more or less. They're actually like qualitatively, they're, they're different in kind, not just in amount. So I've been saying this word a lot today, but this Piaget's idea of the sensory motor stage that really dominates his writing on this time period of birth to two, and that infants construct this understanding of their world, right? Because think of what a constructed understanding of your world is. This is what I do in this situation. This is what I do in this situation. This is what this situation means. And they, they create that understanding of the world by coordinating their sensory experience with their physical motor actions. Right, so sensory motor. According to Piaget, the crowning achievement of that, the, the, the biggest moment of this stage is this idea of what's called object permanence. The understanding that objects exist even when they can't be seen, heard, or touched. So the example of that is like peekaboo, right? So with a little, with a child that hasn't reached object permanence of nine months, so with like say like a, a seven month year old, old, you cover your eyes and I'm doing it, but no one can see me, so I don't have to actually do it, I guess, when uh, I'm just recording the audio. But like, it's like, obviously you know what peekaboo is. It's like you hide your eyes and it's like you disappeared. And then you move your eyes and it's like the, the world to the child comes back because the person they love is there again. And then they leave and 
eventually your child's like my age and I go to, hey, want to play peekaboo to Evelyn? And she'll just pull my hands down because she's like, don't be silly, Dad. I know you're not like going anywhere. I know that you're a permanent object that continues to exist even when you can't be seen, heard, or touched. Now that'd be obviously a little advanced for Evie to explain it that way, but it's this idea of like the kids start to understand that things exist even when they're not in their immediate sensory environment, that objects have permanence. And that that's a key kind of development if you're talking about how kids are getting smarter. That part of that process, this is like a key indicator of, uh, of cognitive development, the reaching of this milestone of object permanence. So some of these other interesting ways of looking at uh, the conditioning aspect in this it's like there's no there's no doubt that another piece that influences how kids think is what gets rewarded right that certain times they do things and, and maybe maybe it gets them attention or positive emotion right so that this has a huge anytime we're talking about any kind of learning that the kids going through um, the chances of it having some kind of component of this opera conditioning or behavior related to reward, basically. And then, oh, sorry, so I have this as layers of cognitive development, so we have to realize that these are all parts of it. The other big piece of it is what the kid's paying attention to is so huge, right? And that when they're paying attention, so let me just read this, like, attention and the focusing on mental resources of selecting information it improves cognitive processing on many tasks. Even newborns can detect a contour and fix their attention on it. Older infants scan patterns more thoroughly. By four months, infants can selectively attend to an object. An object. Individual differences in attention during infancy predict cognitive functioning later in life. I'll read that again just for uh, emphasis. Individual differences in attention during infancy predict cognitive, cognitive functioning later in life. So like even these attention levels early and the, the ability because attention level at a certain point is, is uh, a cognitive skill but that is a physical processing activity of the brain, neural activity of the brain. So there's a physicalness to attention, even though you wouldn't necessarily think about that. It's a focusing power of mental resources. So what's that saying? It's like, what I'm saying here is you can't, it's not just cognitive, part of cognitive development is this reward aspect. Part of it is this idea of, well, if you're looking at how the brain's developing, you can't forget the fact that attention and what's being focused on and how much focus power there is, 
is a huge variable on why two kids might develop very differently. Right? This idea of joint attention. And so not just attention, but the ability to actually like share attention with somebody else and actually be like playing the same game and stuff like that. And like again, that's just like something that requires more mental skill. Right, so if you want to just add to your notes, maybe the joint attention is like, could my daughter sit down with like her cousin and then bo both of them play with a, a puzzle or something like that for like an hour and both have the same attention on the same thing jointly, like at the same time? Because the point here is like, it's hard for a kid to be like focused by themselves. It's even harder for them to share in attention, but that that ability to do that is linked with cognitive functioning later. So it's, it's like relevant to care about, right? So it's like, it's really interesting just looking at how what we call cognition or thinking develops. I thought that you might find it interesting here that this idea in the book of, of what joint attention is, that joint attention so again, this is like really interesting because it's about the two kids' ability to participate in the same mental world at the same time. And to do that, it requires these three things. It requires the two kids having the ability to track each other, right? So say like following each other's gaze. So what I mean by that, by gaze is like where they're looking. So say they're like both looking at the same book would be an easy example. So they're sitting on, two kids are sitting on the couch together Again, this makes less sense with like an infant example, but let me just explain maybe this concept more broadly and then we can pull it back. Let's say like two, two uh, younger kids, they're sitting on a couch together. They're both looking at a book. You consider that joint attention. Part of that is that they're both focused on the same thing, like literally, tr and, and they're also able to tell what the other person's looking at. So that's the ability to track each other's behavior. One person's kind of directing attention. Maybe they're both holding it but one person's like holding the book and then there's this like reciprocal interaction it's like this idea meaning like well first of all it's just a recognition of the fact that for a kid staying in the mental world of another kid requires energy and it requires a certain amount of cognitive kind of bandwidth And the ability for kids to develop this skill has implication later. It's probably not like a huge groundbreaking realization for you to realize that like attention span and cognitive development are related, right? Like somebody's ability to pay attention and focus and their ability to get smarter that those two things are related. And that's true whether we're talking about a two-year-old or a 20-year-old or a 60-year-old. So it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. Like it's like, and it's, it's like your brain, if we're talking about how much your brain is able to like improve, what, what I'm basically trying to get at, and I don't know if I did a good job here, but over these last few slides is to kind of stress this variable of 
we can never underestimate how much attention and what we're paying attention to plays a role in, in this whole process. Okay. So memory is uh, an interesting thing, right? Because we often think of memory in relation to like what we can currently remember. And what I mean by that is this idea of like, we think that we don't have memories from when we were a baby because we can't currently access those. But that doesn't mean that when we were say one year old that we weren't behaving in ways that showed that we had memory of what happened before that. So like if when we were 11 months old, we really liked a certain flavor of food and we still liked that when we were one year old, you could imply that the reason we liked it when we were one is because we remembered that we liked it when we were 11 months old, showing that we were definitely having memory. So the fact that we, we can't remember it as adults, that's, that's a retrieval issue. That's not a whether it's there or not issue. Right, so memory is this really complex thing that we can, it's looking at retention of information over time, like the ability to not just store it, but to retrieve it. And some memories may be for a few seconds or for, for a lifetime. A six month old can remember information for, we think roughly 24 hours. Now, again, it depends on the specificness and the complexity. By 20 months, uh, they can start to remember information for 12, from 12 months earlier, right? So by the time the kid's like, you know, a little more than a year and a half, So it's just, it, now, okay, so here's this other thing, right? Because a certain part when you're like, what do you mean by that? It's like, well, there's different things. There's certain things like at a certain point until the kid starts talking, it's very hard to tell explicitly what they remember, right? So explicitly would be like, hey, Evelyn, can you come here and tell me about, you know, tell us about the last time we went to the beach. What was that like? And if she tells like some story about going and flying a kite or something, that's an explicit memory, a conscious memory of facts and experiences. And for like little kids, that's going to be a lot weaker than what we would call implicit memories, right? So, so when you say like they have these memories from traumas earlier, that could be about like how to do a certain task or that they like a certain thing and not something else. So it'd be more implicit memories without conscious recollection, like certain skills they've learned or procedures they've learned. So there is this, there's this interesting point that always comes up around this, right? Around this idea of like autobiographical memory or this idea of like, it would be so interesting if you just could remember like when you were one and it seems like this infantile or what's sometimes called childhood amnesia or this idea that most adults can't remember anything from the first three years or so of life now there's exceptions to that but you know if you ask people on average what's the earliest memory it tends to be from around three or later and there's some interesting research looking at why that might be the case and that it might be actually related to 
the prefrontal lobes and that they play an important role in how we understand and store the important memories of uh, or uh, the important memories that we have of different things and that actually the fact that that's not fully mature may have a influence on the tendency towards this childhood amnesia which is pretty pretty neat idea that by the end of the second year of life this long-term memory starts to become much more uh, sustainable or substantial and reliable and sustainable too right like it starts to become more of what we consider like normal memory but this connection to the prefrontal lobe, I think, is an interesting potential explanation for why this childhood amnesia that we all kind of experience uh, in this issue with autobiographical memory is, is such a thing. So now think of this for a sec. So this idea of concept formation and categorization. So again, I mentioned categorization or like Oh, all these pictures are pictures of monkeys, all these ones are pictures of humans, all these ones are pictures of humans straight on, and all these ones are pictures of humans from the side. That would be an example of categorizing, right? So I want to just talk about this for a sec, because these are both linked to this idea of the kid getting smarter, and part of getting smarter is understanding that there's ideas that we call concepts, or this idea of cognitive groupings of similar objects or similar concepts, whether we're talking about objects or events or people or ideas, like for example, tag and soccer and, um, I don't know, guess who, it's just a game my daughter likes, it's like those are all examples of games, right, and the, the concept of what a game is. And that understanding like the concept of what games are and that there's like tons of things like that that we just take for granted as adults it's weird to talk, almost talk about but that starting to understand all those things is part of what the kids doing is they're getting smarter and that these concepts are a key aspect of that development of their thinking without concepts each object or event would seem completely random concepts are what kind of add order and explanatory structure. Young infants form categories, right? And part of the young kids or the young infants ability to start to understand the world is to start to understand how things fit and where they fit in these different categories we've been talking about. Young infants form categories, but the nature of these categories change throughout infancy in complexity. Right, there's, sorry on that last slide, I lost, I missed the last point. It was like called perceptual categories. It's like the kids also starting to get at that level where they can start to categorize things based on their perceptions. Like these are foods I like, these are foods I don't like. What's the difference between those? Well, it's a perceptual judgment, right? Like the preference piece at the perceptual level so anyway so so all this categorization and the ability to, to distinguish is part of the kid getting smarter and, and part of the this is all kind of leading towards the end of this infancy stage where the child's starting to 
play with language. And we see language start to emerge as a form of communication, both spoken and written and sign language. And actually, interestingly, like, for example, with my daughter, like, she was able to sign first. So she would, um, like, touch her, uh, kind of if she made, like, a beak with her thumb and index and middle finger with both hands and touch that together, it meant more. Or she would kind of tap on her chest to mean uh, all done when she was eating. So it's this idea that they, she could, like, understand that before she could say it. That language have common characteristics, right? Which is kind of interesting. This idea of organizational infinite generativity. This idea that um, infinite generativity, what's that mean? It means I can say that once I saw an elephant riding a zebra drinking a bottle of Pepsi with headphones on, and you're like, what the heck was that? It's like, that was a complete nonsense sentence I just randomly made up. But if you rewound that and you wrote it down, it would be like a really weird sentence, but it was all real words. It's like this language you use has an infinite generativity. Again, that's another one to put on the list of like weird random examples I use. But that's just to try to explain that word of infinite generativity. And that's one of the things of languages. It's like this ability to basically say anything. And that that's a relatively universal thing about language, which is really interesting. Of course, some languages are more uh, constricting than others. But this infinite generativity, this ability to... I should have just read it like this instead of giving such a weird example. But this ability to produce an endless number of meaningful sentences using a, using a finite amount of words and rules, right? So there's a, there's a certain amount of words, but there's almost like a limited amount of ways to use those words. And one of the things that's so interesting about language and I kind of touched on in the last slide, but I want to expand more here is the universality of it and how, of course, there's tons of different languages across the world, but they, they seem to have, especially at the infancy level, a similar pattern. And the way that the infant brain engages with language generally has a universality, to, uh, meaning just like a commonality in how that happens across the across languages right so you see all these things here like you see the role of crying in all languages you see this cooing or this gurgling this like beginning of vocalization you see this beginning of what we call babbling or like this constant value like the ba pa like you start to see this remember what the kids doing is starting to play with vocalization and gesture and pointing at things and that was actually one of the first things my daughter did that was like kind of like a signal to me she'd be like like pointing at stuff like she could point at what she wanted way before she could tell me. it's interesting that point on the slide actually says a lack of pointing is an indication of a of an issue sometimes right that it almost seems that that's like an inbuilt communication system 
Because what is a point, really? And I know this, like, not to oversimplify, but if I point, it's like me trying to communicate with you to focus your attention somewhere else to where I'm kind of directing it towards. And it's like, it's interesting to think that that, the baby doesn't have to be told that that's what that does. So what I'm going to talk about here kind of has to be understood in relation to what we were talking about just a little bit ago around this word habituation or around how we get bored of stimulus that we get repeatedly exposed to. So what they do in these studies is uh, before learning words, infants make little distinction among the language sounds. So between birth and six months, let me just explain it like this. They... Uh, you show a baby a bunch of the same words in all different languages, right? And then you show new ones. And the baby can actually tell when it's a sound that they haven't heard, even when it's not in their native language. So a baby, when they're between, when they're under six months, can tell when a new word is introduced, right? You're, you're exposing them to all these words over and over. Then all of a sudden you show them some new ones. And they can tell that regardless of language. But... As they get older, they start to, just in the same way they lose a lot of their ability to learn in multiple languages, their ability to, to notice novelty starts to, what we would call, is they start to develop a monolingual environment, a one language environment. And that actually their ability to tell the difference between, say for example, English words their ability to get good at that at a certain level almost requires them to leave behind the ability to do it in other languages. Right, so I have their over the next six months infants in monolinguistical environments improve perceiving sounds, changes of their own language, and lose the ability to recognize differences of unrelated languages. Now, there has been some interesting So, like, listen to this. So, I thought I had it here. But, yeah, they've done really interesting research into this in households of kids that grow up with two languages. And they don't seem to do this as much. And their ability to notice that difference and that novelty new word seems to be linked to this idea of how people say, like, that learning multiple languages is good for cognitive development. It's, it's, it's. Okay, yeah. Infants growing up in monolingual environments, so one language environments, get better at perceiving changes in sound in their own language. Uh, if one parent speaks a second language, and the child isn't exposed they'll generally okay so basically sorry I, I i need to realize that you're only hearing what i'm seeing and not reading what i'm here reading so that last 30 seconds was boring for you but basically what it's saying is like there is a significant difference in how this um plays out whether you're living in a family that only speaks one language or two in uh 
but yeah, it's the point I wanted to make there, though. I kind of got into the weeds there, into the deep waters around the nuance of this point. But the general point is this ability to, to notice novelty tends to increase then exponentially within, say, for example, English and decrease elsewhere. And the fact that it decreases elsewhere isn't just a sign, isn't a sign of like the brain not being strong. It's, it's about the brain prioritizing the English in that example. Okay, so for this, an important word to understand here is segmentation, like making a segment, making like a sequence, like a bunch of words in a row, understanding that like to understand speech, it's really about understanding how words relate to each other. It's not just about saying a bunch of things. It's about kind of lining them up. That the real challenge in language learning is what's called segmentation. And that it's about this idea of, that it can be difficult to segment continuous stream of speech into words. So, like for example, my daughter, I don't know if that was smooth how I said that, but it's like this idea of my daughter would be like, Daddy Milk. She wouldn't be like, excuse me, Father, I was wondering if you would possibly go up to the kitchen and fetch me a, re a refreshing glass of cold, you know, 2% milk or whatever, right? It's like, she's like, Daddy Milk, now. It's like, the, you wouldn't say, it. you would say like that's an incomplete sentence every, it's like babies solve that problem by doing things like focusing on phenomes and syllables and extracting potential word forms and what I mean by that is things like uh, they, they start to use kind of pieces of words that's what a phenome is and a syllable is like a part of a word right so they may be even more basic my daughter might have been like wawa wawa to mean like water Right, so she might have, before she could say water, she might have been able to say like wah-wah and like point at the faucet. Right, so she's understanding, she might even, she's understanding what it is, she's understanding that that's where it comes from. That, and, and this is, this is kind of the point um, that I want you to have in your notes, okay? That you can distinguish between two types of like the child's vocabulary, what you would call a receptive vocabulary. So that's like the words that the child can understand. And then as they start to be able to vocalize their spoken vocabulary, the words that they use. And so the idea here is that their receptive vocabulary is much bigger. The amount of words my daughter, even now at her age of of four, she understands a lot more than she can say. So if you check out this graph on the, or just the, this uh, little table, here we see across the left age, and then we see the kind of average age of first words, right? So we see that as early as like, nine months kind of, or 10 months maybe, and up to about like a year and a half. But then once, but then there's this like huge vocabulary spurt. 
And what we see is that kids go from being able to use a few words to then there's kind of this explosion of vocabulary. But when they start, they're often using like single words, right? Like kind of, I said the example before of like Wawa, eventually then my daughter's just saying like water, water, right? Or up, up, that means she wants me to like pick her up. And that's very common that they're obviously, you know, and some of this is obvious, like it, it's not like my daughter would have started speaking full complete sentences. Right, they're starting with like kind of the pieces. And on that point, like nouns are easier to learn, right? So the majority of the things that they're gonna learn are like the names of stuff. The majority of words in this class are more perceptually accessible. So think of what the word telegraph means, right? Like it's like, if you're playing sports, they say don't telegraph. Telegraph would be like showing that you're about to do something before you do it. Right? In this context, it's like the kids are starting to now, they're not just using single words. They're starting to string things together. They're starting to say things like, Daddy, ice cream, me. Instead of like, they're not they're not just saying ice cream. They're not saying, Daddy, could you please get me an ice cream that I would love to eat because I'm hungry. They're saying like, daddy, ice cream, me. They're like in the middle of those two things. They're like telegraphing that they're about to beat a speech. Between 12, 18 to 24 months, uh, kids start to produce two word utterances. They start to be able to convey meaning. They start to be able to rely on gestures and tone and context, right? That like pointing up at the, when you're near the sink and saying, daddy, daddy, that, that that could mean like I want to drink, but that if we were like in the backyard and she did that, that wouldn't mean the same thing. That's like understanding what context means. Right, that these little two word things like daddy, uh, daddy up, daddy up means like pick her up or that actually applies in all kinds of situations. It's like remarkably succinct. It actually is like quite effective. In every language, these first word combinations have incredible economic quality means like in like no matter what language we're talking about, kids tend to learn the most functional language first. So the, for your note here, you might want to have this idea of like Telegraphic speech is this use of like short, precise words. Daddy, water, up now, more, right? Or not just more, but like, uh, daddy, more, right? So this idea of like, it's not sentences, but it's more than just single words. It's, it's telegraphing what's coming later telegraphing so just to look at this quick and you don't have to write this down but um, just to look at this right so this is just saying kind of on average some of these big language milestones so at birth we see crying begins two to four months cooing begins or like starting to make vocalizations by five months we see some first understanding of words by six months some like babbling and and starting to make their own words and by seven to 11 months we see 
some more language specific listening like we were talking about by 8 to 12 months we start to see the baby starting to use gestures and showing and pointing and starting to comprehend more complex words by 13 months the first spoken words of course there's differences by 18 months we start to see that on average this vocabulary spurt by 18 to 24 months in the end of the infancy period we see the beginning of this telegraphic speech or these two-word utterances in this rapid expansion of the understanding of words. So in terms of what parts of the brain are involved in this language acquisition it, and, and processing, it's interesting that to look at these the bronchus and the, and the wernix areas, right? So the bronchus area is where, so sorry, the two regions involved, the bronchus area is the area in the left frontal lobe of the brain and so this part of the brain is really interesting when we're talking about a child's development of language from the perspective of producing words right so you'll see in that picture that that's production where Wernick's area is more around comprehension right so you might want to even in your notes just you know not to foreshadow too much, but an easy test question would to be to have you to distinguish between those. So one interesting thing is we can see the damage to either area uh, in the brain, either of these areas can cause an aphasia or like a loss impairment of language processing. In Broca's area, we can see somebody that's had an injury here having difficulty producing speech like actually talking but they may understand speech it may not affect their comprehension and then the opposite in the wernix area could be poor comprehension but fluent speech now that fluent speech would be nonsensical because they wouldn't understand but they might have a wider range of vocabulary yeah it's kind of it's a weird way of saying it like fluent nonsensical speech but that's exactly what it means right because that'd be exactly what somebody that could talk really easily but had no idea what they were talking about right that you'd call that fluent nonsensical So when we're talking, and this is again, you know, in a developmental psychology class, at a certain point, we're never going to be able to get away from the nature-nurture thing. And it's, it's like, again, it's like this is just another repackaging of the same thing. It's like when you're looking at language, you have to also look at this biological and environmental levels of influence because, sure, a lot of language is learned, but a lot of it's also biological in the sense that your even your ability to speak and understand is based on certain capabilities that are specific to your nervous system right that we have actual parts of the brain that seem to be predisposed for both like I was saying the production and the comprehension of language so it's like you have the operating system in the software so it's not all just learning right there's there's this highly significant biological predisposed genetic nature 
component. Now the linguist Noam Chomsky went even further with this in, 19, in his idea in 1957 when he proposed that it might be interesting to look at the human brain as almost now again he's he's using this as a conceptual way of looking at it a language that the brain is almost a language acquisition device right you could also say it's just pre-programmed to acquire acquisition to acquire language it's like your brain's a device designed to acquire language now, when you put together all the things we've been saying so far today, it's hard to argue that. So Chomsky, who again, Chomsky's book, Manufacturing Consent, is a very important book and a really interesting one that you'd probably like if you haven't read it. So Chomsky proposes that human beings are biologically pre-wired to learn language at a certain time and in a certain way, which we've been talking about. He said that children are born into the world with a language acquisition device of biological endowment or inheritance that enables a child to detect various features and rules of language. So really interesting idea. So a quick recap of our main points for today, because you guys were thinking like, you know, Mike, after a two hour and plus presentation, what we need is a real detailed super long recap of all your points no i'm just joking trying to be funny two hours in oh man just hearing crickets okay but this idea of let me just quick recap and kind of break it into subsections so first looking at the physical piece this idea of cephalocaudal or head to tail and then proximodistal or like uh middle to outward or, or like center to extremity patterns of physical growth that physical growth is rapid in the first year but slows in the second year that we have these dramatic changes in the characteristics of brain development in the first two years neurons are born synapses are formed and pruned pruned major structures emerge we see this idea of a neuroconstructive view right that we're born and then our kind of neurons are the connections are forming in this process of us adapting with our world that the we also spent time talking about the role of sleep and the as more specifically the role of uh, REM sleep and REM dreaming in influencing cognitive development. We looked at how reflexes, these genetically predisposed automatic movements, govern newborn's behavior. We talked about this idea of the dynamic systems theory and how what this teaches around motor skill development when babies are motivated to act. We talked about the idea of gross motor skill and fine motor skill and when these begin to emerge. We talked about how sensation occurs when information interacts with sensory receptors, right? That's our sense organs. And that how perception is our interpretation of those sensations. 
we talked about this idea of visual acuity or like or uh, uh, visual acuity is like how um, the more the higher the, the acuity the less blurry and then we talked about depth perception and how those things improve throughout infancy we talked about this intermodal perception that that we don't just perceive each of our sensations in a vacuum that we perceive them as a collaboration or an integration of perception that our ability to perceive and what we even consider as our perception is influenced by both our nature and our nurture that Piaget taught this idea that the child is constructing their cognitive world they're building a model or a mental structure to adapt to their experience to their world he argued that babies don't understand this idea of object permanence or that you know when i cover my face in peekaboo that i still exist that they don't understand that object permanence idea until they're sometimes as old as nine or ten months but he said on average eight or nine months recent research suggests that babies may understand it earlier might even be born with that idea some babies show it really early. Right, so it's not that Piaget's idea of object permanence isn't useful. It's just more recent research has suggested it might be younger even. That this idea of social cognition or the idea that our thinking develops in a social context, that that has relevance as early as infancy. All right, everyone. I know that was uh, that was a interest. I hope you found that interesting. You know that early development of the brain. And now this first quiz is going to focus on what we learned there. Some of those core ideas. So I encourage you to check out the chapter. Maybe look through this PowerPoint. Maybe even watch it again. I don't know. Um, if you want to watch it while you're looking through your PowerPoint and. You know, I don't want you to treat these as these are huge, stressful exams. This, this is a quiz that's probably going to take you 20 minutes, 25 minutes, half an hour or so, you know. And it's just going to kind of quiz you on some of the core concepts we talked about today. All right. Thank you so much. I love this class, and uh, I hope you, you got some value from that and learned a couple things. Take care, and have a great day. Cheers.